Hey folks, before we get into this episode, just some quick business here. If you want to learn more about this project, you can do so at the website lastborninthewilderness.com. A link to that website is in the description of this episode. There at the website, as well as down in the description, you'll find links to all the social media sites this podcast is updated regularly on. You'll find all the various platforms that you can subscribe to this podcast on. And you will also find links to the one-time donation pages through the PayPal link or the coffee page. And you'll also find the link to the Patreon page. Go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness. By going to that page, you can make very small monthly contributions to the production of this podcast. This podcast is purely a work of passion and, and love, so this is always going to be freely available anyway. But if you really want to support this work, you can do so through that Patreon page. And by doing that, you'll gain early access to these episodes a week in advance before the public release as a way to sort of give you thanks for what you're doing. I also find other ramblings and other things that I throw on that page as well. So thank you so much for your attention up to this point. Here's the episode. became aware of Robert Forte through a podcast with Psychedelics Today in which he discusses, as in the episode, they frame it as the dark side or the dark history of psychedelics. He doesn't like to necessarily describe it in that way, but Robert has had a very deep history with psychedelic research, with some of the most influential and uh, well-known individuals within the psychedelic community. He has worked with Stanislav Grof and Frank Barron, who's the co-founder of the Harvard Psilocybin Project. He has collaborated with uh, Gordon Wasson, Timothy Leary, Houston Smith. He mentions in this Alexander Shulgin and Terrence McKenna. He's a former director of the Albert Hoffman Foundation, and he currently teaches at the California Institute of Integral Studies. Now, the nature of this conversation is to discuss the more nuanced and complex nature of what it means to have psychedelics enter our society, enter our collective understanding and consciousness, and how government institutions, uh, the media, and uh, various other cultural forces in in our world have ulterior motives when it comes to psychedelics, when it comes to the public using psychedelics. And so in this, we discuss like the legalization of cannabis and how he frames it. And, and I'm going to let him speak for this, that in states that we now think of as cannabis being more legal, um, he says that it's never been more illegal, that based on the way that these things are being regulated and controlled by the government, there's much more control over these substances than there's ever been. And he also discusses the, the kind of nature of MDMA and its... Uh, and the clinical trials that are being done right now by MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. He discusses some of the maybe ulterior motives that come from, say, 
you know, the military industrial complex and their interest in something like MDMA research regarding the uh, treatment of, of soldiers and veterans that have PTSD. You know, there are, there's a lot to unpack in this episode. I don't really know how to uh, fully articulate what, what is being discussed in this thing because there's just so much that Robert gets into. But Robert has just this really important perspective. And I think for anybody that is advocating for the legalization of psychedelics, that is trying to uh, eliminate a lot of these ridiculous laws and prohibitions that surround psychedelic drugs and cannabis, we need to have a much more grounded perspective of the political institutions and the the motives that come with these institutions and the individuals within these institutions because psychedelics as he frames it they were branded in the 60s as being this thing that was going to automatically almost challenge authority and challenge institutions and a challenge high and challenge hierarchies and that is not a given there is a, a lot of room there for psychedelics to be used in less than positive ways. You know, Robert is somebody who has a deep respect for psychedelics and understands the very value and power that psychedelics have uh, for human consciousness and for human development. So he understands that unless we have a real grounded understanding of the world in which we are a part of and the forces that are at work in this world we're going to be taken advantage of as we have been over and over again as a society. So when we talk about psychedelic renaissance and psychedelic research, he says he's very positive about that, but we need to be able to have a more objective and critical and skeptical view of those that wish to capitalize off of these things. We must understand that when psychedelics are being researched and explored in our culture, in our society, and when it's becoming legitimized by real studies like the clinical trials with MDMA, for instance, that we understand that these can be used to perpetuate a certain complacency and a certain lack of defiance towards illegitimate institutions, illegitimate authority, and illegitimate structures. We get into this, you know, and we talk about Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, and, and uh, we get into, it's really fascinating conversation. I just really had a really wonderful, engaging conversation with Robert. I'm not even going to try to unpack everything. Uh, there's no point in even trying to do that, but I, I recommend that you just really pay attention to what Robert has to say in this episode. Uh, Robert has edited two books, and I just want to mention them real quick, and I'm going to put a link to them down in the description of this episode. He has a collection titled Entheogens and the Future of Religion, as well as Timothy Leary, Outside Looking In. So I'll provide a link to those collections that he has edited in the description down below. And I really recommend, again, that people dig into this episode and the content of it and allow it to sit within you and to really inform your understandings of what is currently happening regarding psychedelics in this time that we are in today. I thank you so much for your attention up to this point. Here's my episode with Robert Forte. Um, well, thank you for doing this, man. Um, yeah, I, I uh, came across the, the interview that you had uh, for Psychedelics today, and uh, your perspective is very unique, and so I was excited to have you on because I do like to talk about psychedelics on this thing. So um, it's really good that uh, I'm really thankful that you had the time to do this. So thank you for being on.
Sure. I'm glad to talk about it. Um, glad you listened to that. You know, we've got a whole new phenomena here, podcasts. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun to kind of ride the wave, I guess. <laughs> so let um, me know a little bit about you. I, you know, I've glanced over your site and I've listened to some of your presentations. I was just listening to um, <clears throat> one of your older ones, a description about your psilocybin, a psilocybin trip. And, oh, uh, but yeah. I really don't know anything about you except you're up there in Twin Falls, Idaho. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, my day job, I make coffee. I'm a barista. It's just sort of a thing I've been doing my adult life. It's just sort of a job you get, you just learn how to do and you just stick, you stick with it. Um, but yeah, I've, uh, this podcast is really my, my passion project, I guess. It's something that I truly enjoy doing. Um, and, uh, I guess as the project has evolved, um, since that episode you mentioned where I talk about my psilocybin trip, like that is really the earlier days of this thing where I wasn't really sure what I wanted to talk about or what I was doing with it. But, um, but yeah, I, I just, uh, I'm really passionate about discussing things that I think are necessary. Like there are, there are certain conversations that I think we need to start having about various subjects. Psychedelics are one of them, but um, you know, the ecological crisis, the climate crisis that we're in that I discuss in that TEDx talk. Um, these things are, you know, we need to start figuring out how to have a conversation about these things. And it's not easy. I think um, psychedelics is sort of, it's sort of interesting how it fits into the broader picture of it all. But I think like what you have discussed, uh, I've heard you discuss is that I think we have an overly cheery or overly... Um, optimistic but it's it's definitely sort of a naive point of view when it comes to what psychedelics are capable of i think we tend to have a much more positive optimistic view of what's currently happening so i think it's always good to balance out that perspective with something that i've heard you talk about you know and considering you have credentials i would say you have had a long history um a part of this movement i think that your uh your opinion has a certain weight to it which I think is really valuable. So um, anyway, yeah, so just myself, I mean, I'm just, uh, I'm 29 years old. Um, I actually just got married a couple days ago. Wow, congratulations. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was sort of a spontaneous kind of decision. We had wanted to do it for a while, but we just uh, made the appointment and got it done. So, wow, fantastic. Yeah. How long yeah. have you been together with your beloved? Um little over two years now at this point yeah yeah so that's what's going on with me yeah um yeah so you're you're um i've listened to some of your things you're very um well read you have a you have a really fantastically interesting array of guests that you interview where's what's your um like your what's your academic background where did you study what is your well i i actually (laughs) i dropped out of high school when i was 17 so i dropped out junior uh, year. No wonder, no wonder you're so smart. <laughs> well, I was extremely depressed as a teenager and school only made that depression and anxiety worse. Um, the longer I stayed in it and, um, I went to a very small school, you know, I'm in Southern Idaho. It's a very rural, uh, area. I do live in a city, but it's a relatively small city. And, uh, I grew up out in the country, um, more or less. And, 
so my, my school, I mean, in, in the class that I was in would have been like less than 30 students per class per grade. So it's pretty small. Um, but I, I've, rural, in, so in rural Idaho, I've, I've been through there a lot of yeah. farmland, uh, yeah. not to stereotype, but, um, no, there is, yes, really, um, you know, kind of, uh, not not exactly the kind of place you would expect. Not a hotbed of intellectual analysis on <laughs> um, global trends and environmental studies or exactly. psychedelic Uh huh. Yep. Yeah. There's um, um, definitely a, an, a a hunger I was having, and I think I felt pretty conflicted or, or constricted, I should say, about uh, about what I wanted to think about or talk about, and. Um, Finally, I think the biggest thing was just overcoming this sense of like, uh, it's almost in what they call it imposter syndrome or, or sort of an imposter, a feeling that you're an imposter, like you're not qualified to be discussing psychedelic research, you're not qualified to be discussing environmental, ecological, climate change issues, you know, you're just some dude like me. I, I tried to go to college, um, because I immediately got my GED after dropping out of high school and. Uh, I went to a local college and it was pretty much free. I mean, I, I figured out a way to, you know, they give you some money to do it and you do it. And I just couldn't do it. I, I don't know why I just lacked all interest in doing what was, what I was required to do within a school setting. The only thing I enjoyed was like really good lectures that teachers would have. Um, and particularly if it was about something that was like political or about like communication or consciousness or society or anything like that. Um, but, uh, in general, I mean, it was, a it was just an experience of, of not knowing what the hell I'm supposed to do with this frust I guess this energy I have. And so, um, podcasting has been a good way to express that in the place that and I'm in right now. Yeah. Your parents, can I ask you, how were your parents supportive of your, your, the way you didn't really connect to the mainstream or what did, what do your parents do? Well, my parents, um, well, they're both pretty religious, so Interestingly, the title of this podcast, the name of it, Last Born in the Wilderness, is a reference to an early book in the book, like one of the first books in the Book of Mormon. I don't know if you're familiar with the LDS Church at all and that religion. A little bit. It's little bit. very yeah. odd, you know, just like every kind of religion that's probably popped up ever. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a very interesting thing, and it's, of course, a product of historical trends, histor- a certain moment in particularly American history and American cultural development. Um, it's very fascinating, but only from the outside in would I say that. When you're a part of it, you don't feel that way at all. You you are either fully into it and you, you believe everything or you have a lot of really big questions and doubts. And so um, my father would call me the last born in the wilderness because I was the youngest child and also because it was a reference to a, a scripture, like a, a segment of one of the early books in the Book of Mormon, there's a, I think you kind of paraphrased it, but basically it's like a segment about having children out in the wilderness and there's, yeah, that whole thing is in there. So it was sort of a a way to connect my childhood to my current state of mind and and belief. But over time, as my podcast evolved, I realized I was actually really interested in ecology and environmental issues. and, And I think the name has sort of taken on a different quality. It's sort of become about what does it mean to be born in the wilderness or what does it mean to be the last born in a wilderness? Is the wilderness disappearing or are we the last people to be born? You know, like what, what does it mean? So 
um, I like the ambiguity because I, I like to cover a lot of different topics on this thing. So, yeah. Yeah, fascinating. Very interesting. Yeah, so religion, <clears throat> I mean, Mormonism is, a, you know, like you said, it's a kind of strange, um, very modern uh, cult um, that, like a lot of religions, start out as they're cults. You know, they're not really religions in the sense of um, <clears throat> enabling and a connection, a reconnection, right? That's what religion means, reconnection with the sacred, with something, with something, a, a supernatural realm. Um, but these cults spring up that sort of co-opt that curiosity, the, an, an innate curiosity of human beings and twist it around into, into creation of a cult that's a you know, has political or economic or militaristic agendas, not really religious agendas. And so a great deal of what people use that word religion for in a true sense, and from my point of view, is not, they're not really religious. Catholicism, you know, like that's not a religion, that's a cult. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Uh, there's, or, or one of my teachers, Houston Smith, you know, we, we used to talk about this, that um, people talk about religious wars, how many wars there have been that are religious wars. And his contention, and I agree, there never has been a religious war. Religious people don't fight. <laughs> religious people have a recognition of this essential divinity that we all share. We don't fight over it. You can put the, you can put the mystics together and they'll all get along fine. They'll all be curious about each other's quest. These, uh, the Middle East, you know, wars that we've had for the last 20 years or 40 years, however, they're not religious wars. You know, these are economic wars. And, but, but they backfire sometimes, you know, like I'm listening to you and I, I grew up in a family that was sort of nominally Roman Catholic and I was forced to go to church till I was about 10 or 12 years old. And I became very curious about the mysteries and about this character of Christ and some of these teachings, the basic ones, you know, love your neighbor. And, um, and then you realize that the churches aren't really furthering that sort of mentality, but they but they've helped ignite a curiosity, and so they they sort of backfire on themselves. Right. And, um, I'll try to shift this back over into the conversation about psychedelics. <laughs> that's kind of what's happened with with the psychedelic phenomena over the last um, you know sixty or seventy years. That it's been a, a vital force in modern American society. Right. Well, I just wanted to comment. I want to say this really quick. I know when we started talking, I was like, I'm not starting this thing yet, but I think that what we've discussed up to this point is really good and I like where it's going. So I just want to comment and say that I'll probably include a lot of that beginning part that we discussed here um, because I think we have a really good uh, basis for conversation. Um, So uh, Robert, um, talking about religion, you know, I, I know that you've I was just listening to something, I think it was on the Psychedelic Salon uh, podcast that you were discussing uh, sort of relig- the roots of psychedelics and religion. And this, like you say, like religion is really about trying to connect to a divine experience. Then, of course, what happens over time when human beings begin to develop ideology, uh, kind of a dogmatic, rigid structure of belief and there may be some room within that to have a conversation about about certain things, but it, it ultimately it comes down to a very rigid, uh, very hierarchical as well, generally speaking, uh, 
social organization when it comes to religion, um, uh, religious structures. I, I don't know if you like to call it religion, but what's commonly referred to as religion, like the Catholic Church or the Mormon Church, or any things that we've discussed discussed up to this point. Um, what and that happen, That seems to happen to almost any sort of endeavor um, relating to human beings trying to connect to some truth. I guess if they want to call it that. Um, and it's it's really fascinating. You're tying that into the psychedelic movement of today. Um, because I think there is this religious, you could say, curiosity that it, that it, that comes innately with having a psychedelic experience. Because my initial experiences with psychedelics were like that; they were very spiritual. I would say they felt like I was connected. It sort of brought me back to a place that I had forgotten, right? And I think that what happens though we can become very naive about some of the history of psychedelics, um, about the very complicated um, history of how psychedelics sort of entered into the public consciousness in the past 50 or so years or however long it's been. And, and you have had a very long history with that. So like you had said, regarding the modern psychedelic, uh, it's called the psychedelic renaissance, right? this sort of revitalized interest and research that's being put into psychedelics like say MDMA or LSD or psilocybin or, or like a psychedelic brews like ayahuasca, um, that there is a side to this that isn't really being examined. And, and I want to ask you, what side are you trying to present regarding this psychedelic renaissance that we're seeing today? Well, okay. I, you know, I'm, I want to be careful here about um, getting a reputation for, for talking about the negative aspects or the um, – I, like, I have a very broad view of this most fascinating subject. I mean, I think this is one of the most fascinating and important subjects in all of religious history, really. I mean, these are – this is a family of drugs that are very likely – a lot of – a lot of scholars, you know, identify these drugs as being at the origin of religion, that uh, maybe even the origin of human consciousness. You know, there's a mysterious uh, evolution of the human species. We don't quite know what happened, but something suddenly uh, accelerated this evolution. And suddenly there was this appearance of uh, human beings that had language and culture and ideas of the sacred and uh, the missing link. What is this missing link? What happened that um, to account for this proliferation of culture and we, and we human beings that are so radically different than all of the other biological creatures on this planet. Well, maybe it was these psychedelic drugs, you know, like Gordon Wasson, I think was the first one to propose this. And then Terence McKenna came along, you know, just in, in his wild Irish way and kind of jazzed up this theory that, you know, certain monkeys came down out of trees and found these mushrooms and it accelerated um, the evolution and development of their brain. And, um, and that makes a lot of kind of intuitive or poetic sense anyway. But when you look at just the record and you look at the myths of origin throughout the world's religious history, in almost every case, you find that there's a magic plant that somebody is eating that's causing a vision 
that connects them with the sacred or is the is the birth of humanity and um whether we're talking about the old testament and the story of adam and eve in the garden of eden or whether we're looking at the epic of gilgamesh and the herb of immortality or whether we're looking in ancient india in the vedas the soma and the fire sacrifice or the ancient greek uh, Eleusinian Mysteries, which was one of the longest-running uh, religious ceremonies of all time that we know of, um, or whether you just want to consider the whole worldwide phenomena of, of uh, shamanism and shamanistic practices that still, in indigenous societies, use these plants as the essential way of connecting with the sacred. And so this is really fascinating. And then... Um, and then there, they were kind of disappeared from modernity for quite a long time, for 2,000 or so years, until this phenomenon began to reappear in the, um, in the middle part of last century through a series of stages. You know, you could say the isolation of the, the, the anthropologists beginning to encounter indigenous societies' use of peyote or ayahuasca, or Albert Hoffman discovering LSD, and then Wasson finding this mushroom, that this phenomena began to reemerge, and people were beginning to have these experiences. To me, it's, it's so very, very fascinating that I decided to make it my life work and to just understand and to convey what I'd learned about this. And um, so I'm saying this because I have a very, very deep and experienced appreciation for the the uniquely powerful um, ability of these drugs plants to open up doorways into vast mysteries, and uh, and they have they have uh, dramatic healing properties when used in right circumstances. I'm fascinated by that, and that was really the first part of my career studying these drugs and being involved in organizing conferences and bringing people together and publishing books and. And, and kind of, I'm, in many ways, I'm, I'm, uh, I helped ignite this renaissance that we're seeing today, working directly with, with a lot of the most significant people from Albert Hoffman and discoverer of LSD and Wasson and Timothy Leary, Stanislav Grof. These were all, you know, um, friends and teachers. Wasson less, I mean, I only spent um, a few days really with Gordon Wasson, but we made a nice connection and he invited me to live at his house and we spent hours talking about these things. And and uh, it was only until, um, it wasn't really until um, like the late 1980s or mid 1990s that I began to become aware of another aspect of this subject that was um, kind of alarming. And, um, and then as I see this renaissance picking up speed, it becomes more and more, I feel more uh, like I need to help share what I've reflected on this. And um, this evangelical fervor that we see today in the media enthusiastically promoting psychedelic drugs and um, that's a cause of concern for me um, because uh, well because it's like the psychedelic phenomena is like a microcosm of the history of religion and that religion is both a 
repository of these techniques for transcendental experiences and healing, but it's also, and perhaps more so, um, an institution of mind control and subjugation of populations and a preservation of economic structures that do not serve the vast majority of people but serve only a small elite. And that, um, and it's sort of with through this lens now that I've reconsidered what this modern phenomena of psychedelic drugs is really all about. Now, I was listening, I was listening earlier today to your tech, your TEDx talk about uh, climate change, you know, and and your the, the the your realization that you're sharing that we're really at the very you know edge of time here. And this is not a secret. People have known this for quite a while. And um, and the, the fact is one of the motivations for the modern psychedelic movement, that, that a number of people got together and realized that we were going to have to really uh, start to control the world's resources, control the world's population. Democracy was no longer going to be tenable. We needed to kind of trick the population so that we could control them in, in much the same way. In fact, Aldous Huxley was one of the leading actors in this scenario uh, to create a kind of brave new world kind of story where um, people are deluded. They're anesthetized by the institutional requirement of taking Soma, a drug that would um, make them feel like everything was okay, give them a mystical experience and let them bliss out for the weekend and completely ignore their economic conditions, their political responsibility. And in this way, the elite hierarchy is able to continue their uh, agenda to dominate the world for their own ilk. Now, this is not my theory. I'm, 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 um, I'm basically just telling you what Aldous Huxley said himself, and, and he's basically articulating his motivation for, for popularizing psychedelic drugs beginning in the 1950s. And your listeners can read this themselves. I mean, we all know Huxley's book, Brave New World, but not so many people are aware of, of Huxley's appendix his addendum to Brave New World, Brave New World Revisited. You can Google it. It'll just take you a half an hour to read it. And it's chilling. You know, after you read, listen to your TEDx talk about the, the you know, kind of end of the world scenario, Huxley's kind of hitting all those notes. And, um, and so it's like these, the group of elites that are throwing fairy dust in the eyes of the population so that they're distracted from, from this uh, political operation. Mm. No. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so are you saying that Aldous Huxley was advocating for something that he was almost warning us about through a brave new world? Does that make sense? Like, Well, yeah, it's a tricky thing. I mean, we all, I mean, if like me, I mean, most of me and my friends, and we, when we read Huxley, we read Brave New World, and we, we think of the warning you know, I think of Huxley as a great progressive, you know, intellectual, a humanist. But, um, you know, I'm kind of taking a step back now and looking at it like Huxley wasn't really, he was kind of a warning, but it was also kind of a blueprint. And Aldous Huxley wasn't, wasn't really exactly like a progressive kind of humanist. He was really 
I mean, I don't know this for sure, and it's something that I research almost daily. You know, he comes from a family of eugenicists, and you can read some of his language, and he's got this kind of aristocratic air about him, and, uh, you know, he's a beneficiary. Uh, He's not really interested in transforming society. He's really more describing the way it is, and, and he and his ilk are the beneficiaries of it. He wasn't, Huxley wasn't a revolutionary. It wasn't like Timothy Leary, who really wanted to, in fact, they were, they, although they were, you know, they're together and both Tim spoke highly of Aldous and enjoyed his relationship. They were, they really had a very antagonistic relationship and, and, um, you know, so Tim was really about, Leary was really about um, transforming the society that Huxley was describing. Huxley was a very conservative character, really. Interesting. I think that we have this this idea, and I have this idea, that if you're writing about your psychedelic experience that, you know, like I know Huxley wrote Doors of Perception, where he's describing his, his uh, experience with mescaline, and reading that, and knowing that Huxley almost advocated that at least the intel, intel, intel excuse me, uh, the elite, the intellectual elite, at least could have access to psychedelics uh, for exp- experimentation. Um, that that makes him automatically a radical, or that makes him automatically somebody in the same uh, vein as, say, a Timothy Leary or a Terence McKenna or something. But there are ways in which the psychedelic uh, experience for certain people, like Huxley, um, it really has nothing to do with transforming society. Or maybe it is about transforming society, but more in a way to buckle down on some of the uh, structures that already exist today. Yeah, well, this is one of the things that I encourage students to really look at more carefully, because as you just said, there's this kind of naive, um, so psychedelics got branded in the 1960s as being agents of change, being counterculture agents of change. It's a branding, it's an advertising branding phenomenon. Oh, psychedelics helped ignite the 60s. They were, they helped start the environmental movement. They were influential in ending the Vietnam War. There, but you know, that's I, I encourage people to go back and look at this because it's really not true. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> really, the opposite is true. The psychedelics were released into contemporary society by the right wing, by the elitists, by the by the Uber capitalists. You know, and this is some so some very important books. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna share with you as if your if your listeners want to you know follow up on this. Like one really important book is um, is called Acid Hype: The Psychedelic Experience and the American News Media, which makes this case very well. Scholarly book by written by Stephen Siff, who's a professor of journalism or communication studies, I believe, at University of Wisconsin. Uh, showing how these drugs were popularized by the media. And the media, you know, you have to understand in American society, post-war American society, the media is not, the mainstream media is not exactly a free press. 
it's not like this American ideal of the fourth estate, but you know, beginning in the post-war period, the American news media was basically taken over in a wide-ranging operation, one of the first operations of the CIA called Operation Mockingbird, where the media is basically infiltrated and it becomes not a fourth estate, but a propaganda ministry. And it's selling a mentality of this Cold War. There's a whole agenda in these concepts of like American exceptionalism. And one of the main characters in this drama is a fellow named Henry Luce, who was, no, he was, he was a fascist. Henry Luce was an uber fascist. He was a, he was, he supported Mussolini, he supported Hitler. He was all about the concentration of wealth. I believe he was a skull and bones guy out of, out of Yale. And, um, he was one of the most significant, um, and influential popularizers of psychedelic drugs, uh, you know, and he and Wasson teamed up. And, uh, and as I said, you know, make it clear in that podcast you just listened to that I'm speaking more and more about, we think of Gordon Wasson as a banker. Well, you know, he wasn't exactly a banker and then he's dealing with pension funds or money. And JP Morgan wasn't just a bank. I mean, JP Morgan was a political force in the United States and an anti-democratic political force. J.P. Morgan was a supporter of the Third Reich. J.P. Morgan tried to um, remove FDR in a military coup in 1934. Um, <clears throat> and Wasson wasn't dealing with the finances exactly. He was a propagandist. He was into public relations for a political force. And this was his, this was one of his greatest contributions was introducing this mushroom into society, which would, which would create this experience that would be like a Soma experience, like Huxley, another associate of his. They collaborated. And, um, and so that's important to realize. Can I ask a question? Um, I think, so you're comparing the mushroom that Wasson, of course, the psilocybin mushroom that he introduced into American culture, um, for me, what what I kind of get from the psychedelic experience is that it it it's not a guaranteed thing, but anybody who has any sort of understanding of our society understands there are certain structures to it. And if you have a psychedelic experience that's rather profound, um, obviously set and setting plays a role in that, of course. But if you have a profound psychedelic experience, it allows you to question your underlying assumptions about these cultural and uh, yeah, cultural institutions. And so I, I guess the comparison that um, maybe that it would be like a Soma in a, you know, Huxley's Brave New World, it just doesn't seem like psilocybin would have that effect on the population. Yeah. Well, I look um, at the agenda of these globalists back in the 19, beginning in the 40s or really earlier, 40s, 50s. Henry Luce wrote about American exceptionalism in the 30s. You look at their agenda for the Third Reich's agenda to basically conquer the world for capitalism. Um, they've really met their goals. I mean, we had a, we, um, you know, we say that psilocybin may have backfired, but these guys are really reaching their goal. Wealth is ever more concentrated in fewer and fewer hands. Um, the military budget is higher than ever. 
uh, were involved in these imperialistic wars that have no end in sight. Um, if it has um, caused a questioning of authority of basic social structures, I don't see it. Do you? I mean, I, I, see, I see the agenda of, of the globalist as, as proceeding basically unchecked by any kind of viable social movement. Um, you know, that we just have to, I mean, we have to accept this. Sure, there was a, there, there was a flurry of uh, anti-war, anti-globalist, pro-environment, feminist consciousness movements in the 60s. But look where we are now. Look who, like, who, who's controlling our government? Who do we have an opportunity to vote for for the House and Senate or presidential candidates? I mean, anti-war, have you ever seen an anti-war presidential candidate in your lifetime? No. Yeah. Not a serious so, one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I have to question that. I also question this, you know, and I, <clears throat> when I, like when I was a kid growing up and I'm, I'm, um, basically twice as old as you are. I was born in 1956, and I saw this psychedelic thing start to happen where I grew up in the Northeast. And I was first kind of uh, appalled by what I saw. You know, high school kids are, you know, taking these drugs and kind of going off on these very wild experiences. But I never really saw them as taking root. I, th I saw people getting sort of deranged by them. And, um, and then I, you know, I didn't really get back into, I didn't start to study the, the phenomena seriously until my third year of college when I had myself <clears throat> kind of a good grounding in uh, meditation and yoga and uh, started to study religion that I began to realize, okay, with a certain set and setting, these experiences can really have a merit. Um, but looking at the overall phenomena of psychedelics and like the proliferation of them today the festival scene for example you know these kids going out and mdma and dmt and are, are these kids really turning into social and political activists i'd like to see some evidence for that i don't i don't i don't myself right so what is the uh the true effect that you think so so let's take something like cannabis legalization i know that cannabis isn't really a psychedelic technically um it does have something i think at least especially when it's edible can have something like a a soft psychedelic experience um but cannabis has been legalized in several states across the united united states um and i see that ultimately as a beneficial thing because people can do something that they were probably doing before it was made legal but now there's less uh repercussions they're they have more legal freedom to get higher quality cannabis and they pay a tax or whatever but they can go home and they can just consume it and not worry about being arrested for doing so um, and i feel this that if that was the case for say psilocybin mushrooms or mdma or uh, any of these other psychedelics out there um, that that overall would be a benefit to society more broadly um, what is your opinion on that regarding the legalization of, say, an MDMA or psilocybin mushrooms? 
Okay, well, let's, let me back up, and I'll be a bit of the devil's advocate here. I've been very involved in cannabis. I've been a cannabis farmer for m most of the last 10 years, and I live in Northern California. <clears throat> and people talk about the legalization of cannabis in California, and I question that. Cannabis is more illegal now in California than it was five years ago. And we're seeing we're not seeing a legalization of cannabis. We're seeing a commodification of cannabis. We're seeing a corporatization of cannabis. There are more there are more regulations now uh, than there were five years ago. I just got a letter from one of the local attorneys about how the county is you know sent out all these letters and busting all of these people, and what had the potential to be a really fantastic kind of grassroots movement where the very great wealth of the of the cannabis industry be spread about over a lot of uh, local farmers and outlaws that had been doing this for many years has instead created this pyramidal structure that only people that have had this access to uh, very expensive uh, permissions and you know land zonings and all of that stuff so to I mean and it, it's a big country and every state is a little bit different but from the standpoint of what's gone on in California over the last several years cannabis has become more illegal and, it, and it's become more of a commodity and I believe that this is uh, very unfortunate and that what 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 I've advocated for with cannabis and what I advocate for in terms of psilocybin as well, MDMA we're going to talk about separately, uh, is that these these substances should be genuinely legal. I mean, like garlic is legal or basil is legal. No one's going to tell me how much garlic I can plant in my garden. And they're going to be they're going to be decriminalized and that it's going to be and then the price is going to just fall from the sky. And um, there's not going to be, it's just going to be kind of spread out all over and that these things should be just like public. They should be, um, they shouldn't, they, like you shouldn't, at, like now you can drive down the streets in LA, I was there a few weeks ago, you know, there are billboards, you know, hey, come here, get this cannabis. And I, I personally believe that these are substances that ought to be just secret. You know, they ought to be. They ought to be just take the hype out of them, take the lure out of them for kids, and and let them just be. Not like I like to think of the policy around psychedelic drugs, the same way I think about the policy towards sexuality. This is something that's. Pri this is something that is the most sacred thing. It's something that is private. You shouldn't really. It's kind of gross to sell it. You know, you don't want, you can't, you shouldn't be seducing people to do it. It's just let it, let it just be a natural phenomena that unfolds in a, in a healthy developmental cycle. And uh, you can't force people to do it. You, you do it in private and it has, you know, and it, it can turn into the most important thing in your life. You develop a relationship to it. But it, when it becomes controlled by the state, and right now in California, cannabis is more, they made up more bureaucracy just to, just for cannabis. It's not legal. It's more prohibited than ever. And, you know, so that's how I feel about it because, um, because people shouldn't be like 
seduced or advertised or goaded into doing this. They should, it, should, it should come into their life through a natural evolution, a natural curiosity about health or religion. It should, and when it's a trend, look, evangelical religions are always like perversions of genuine faith or genuine religious experience. There's an agenda there. When it's evangelical, it's an agenda. And um, I'm all for uh, the 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 total availability, but not the not the evangelizing of it, not the profiteering from it. Right. That's, you know, that's how I feel. Well, I, I just want to make a comment before we get into say like um, your maybe more of your thoughts on say MDMA and uh, the clinical trials that MDMA is going through right now here in the United States as well as in the United Kingdom as well, I believe. Um, but you know, you said something and I, and I think this is something that is lost, um, within the night, I guess you say more of a naive approach to understanding psychedelics, which is that being involved in the, in a psychedelic movement can oftentimes obscure your view of these coercive institutions that you had mentioned. It can obscure your view of what's happening behind the scenes politically. It may, uh, it's like we, by believing that somehow making psychedelics available to the population or cannabis available to the population, that that substance in and of itself automatically is going to somehow save us from all of these problems that we see in our society, that it's going to cure all, fix everything. We ignore the fact, like you described the commodification of cannabis, the commodification of psychedelic substances. There is something really gross in that, right? Because it's like you're selling something that is that you can't really put a price on and it shouldn't even be um, it shouldn't be presented to the public in that way. Uh, and to, to legalize cannabis, let's say within a capitalist culture, a culture that is within the grasp of a kind of neoliberal capitalist economic model, of course, cannabis is going to be uh, in service to that, economic system and to the elites that benefit the most from this. And I had had someone told me this like a year ago and it didn't quite click for some reason until more recently. And and especially when I had gone to California cuz Idaho where I'm at right now it is not legal. But if you go to California or Colorado or Oregon or Washington or Nevada now, I mean it's just easily available and I think being starstruck by the fact that I could walk into a facility and they can just give it, you know, sell it to you. I was just more overwhelmed with that than actually having a deeper analysis of what was really going on. But I think that that perspective that you provi- provide of the commodification process, that needs to be kept in at the forefront of our minds when we think about uh, making psychedelics or cannabis more available to the population. Well, again, it depends on what we mean by available. Where I'm sitting, it's... it's um yeah, you can go to one of these state-sanctioned stores to buy it at a very high price. There's no open market. I mean, legal to me means open market. It means it's, you know, I can go down and buy green beans at my farmer's market, and I don't have to pay. I mean, th- these these stores, uh, the dispensaries here in California, you know, they still are charging, what, what like, it's the most expensive plant in the in the, in the <laughs> yeah. To, or buy like, you know, it's like a, I mean, the prices just drop for growers 
you know, $300 right. a pound is crazy compared to it being $3,000 a pound uh, 10 years ago. But the price to the consumer is still the same. Now, you know, if it was legal, plant do you spend $3,000 a pound for? Come on, how much? I mean, it's harder to grow tomatoes. But tomatoes are $5 a pound. Like, why isn't, why isn't cannabis, <laughs> why isn't cannabis like that? Yeah. That's how it should be. But these so-called legalization has prevented that and has created this very high price for plant that um, really everybody could grow in their garden. And, um, but they restrict how much you can grow. And what we haven't even talked about here as far as cannabis, we want to talk about this a little bit more. The real value of cannabis, um, as far as I can tell after, again, quite a lot of experience with it, is not in the intoxicating properties of cannabis. It's the medicinal aspects of raw cannabis. It's not so much THC, but it's THCA and it's CBD. And it's the value of these drugs, these molecules, in the, and the entourage effect and all the terpenes and the anti-aging and the neuroprotective and the... And the um, and the cytotoxic to cancer cell properties that cannabis, if it were truly legal and people could just grow how much they wanted and could experiment with eating raw cannabis, it would make a, it would take a big hit out of this, you know, multi multi billion dollar cancer industry for one thing. That's why that's why this so called legalization is a scam because it limits how much you can actually grow. And um, so I, I really want people to recognize that, that most, for, like all drug policy, come on, in, in the past, my whole lifetime, drug policy in the United States is a 100% scam that benefits not the people at all, but covert operations. Whether we're talking about the illegalization of heroin, the first of all, the propagation of heroin and the illegalization of heroin, that's a whole that entire thing is a CIA operation to generate billions, probably trillions of dollars now since the, in the just in the post-war period to um, to first of all, infect inner cities. And the way the the black population was beginning to organize and just like cut them off at the feet and create crime and and huge amounts of money, CIA operation. And I'm not making this up. This is this becomes in a very, very important, well-researched book that anybody that's interested in drug policy needs to read. The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia by Alfred McCoy, historian from Yale, professor emeritus, I think now also at University of Wisconsin. And that provides a template for us to realize just how drug policy is a farce and it's a manipulation of the population to generate money for covert operations while having a political impact on the society that they are subjugating. And um, the, the book on psychedelics to parallel the politics of heroin really hasn't been written yet, but it's the same kind of thing. These are drugs that were introduced by the right wing popularized through these the media empire of Henry Luce and others, and then made illegal to create all kinds of social disturbances to um, and generate pro the whole mostly to a very large extent this the underground psychedelic uh, networks were CIA controlled during the 1960s. We think of these things as being 
um, you know, like radical anti-war groups. That's not true. These groups like the Weather Under, like the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, uh, and this and the whole rock and roll scene. A closer analysis of these social phenomena reveals that they are, in fact, secret government operations used to, uh, like, confuse and distract the population. Now, let's let's get to MDMA, if you want, because this is another one that I actually have a great deal of experience with myself. You know, how much um, MDMA has really made it up into Idaho, but maybe tell me a little bit about your experience substance in your room i uh i've had very little uh personal experience with um mdma um i know friends i have friends that like you mentioned the uh rave scene i have a few friends that are very involved in that scene they are very in love with the rave scene and i think that they've taken plenty of i don't know if it's pure mdma they call it molly of course but um something like ecstasy or something a little more pure like molly yeah i have friends that have definitely taken that uh again personally i haven't had um too much of an experience with that um in this area in idaho i would say that that access to ecstasy or mdma would likely come up in some sort of party scenario but um it's not nearly as common i think as say uh cannabis or probably mushrooms i would say are probably like more common yeah mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah that could that almost deserves a whole another podcast i mean the mdma phenomena i was um introduced to that drug in the early 1980s and i had an experience with it that was just really really incredible now i'm just a recent college graduate at this point i was uh i had um an experience that just opened my heart and opened my mind, and it was one of the most important experiences of my life, just like a, a momentary sanity, where mm. all my fears and inhibitions and doubts were just temporarily dissolved in a, a sense of just um, pure sanity and love and acceptance and understanding. What a valuable drug for a psychotherapeutic setting. And so um, I... I went up to the man who was known as the God Alexander Shulgin, this great biochemist, and I went up to talk with him. I was just, I was devoting my t- time as a student to understanding psychedelics, and I went up to talk to this fellow, and he helped me set up a laboratory. It wasn't illegal, and um, we made just the 100% pure MDMA, and I began a, like a to research it and give it to people and ask them to report on it. And um, like every single person, just about every single person had the same kind of experience. Like, oh my God, I could finally, you know, my wife and I, we were going to divorce, but we broke through and now we've, you know, had this reunion of our connection and our family or people that were struggling with uh, addiction or uh, trauma, these these extraordinary um, religious and therapeutic and personal breakthroughs. It was fantastic several years. And so I went around and I turned on people all over the place, including people like at the Harvard Medical School and medical school at the University of Chicago, where I was a graduate student and all over the place. 
turned on the president of the American Psychiatric Association, and everybody and everybody was saying, "Wow, this is going to be the next really, really important breakthrough in psychiatry." I turned on a Benedict, a man who'd been a Benedictine monk for thirty years, who said. A monk spends his entire life cultivating the same awakened attitude this gives you. I turned on a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, said this is going to be the most important drug in psychiatry. But then what happened? One of the people, ironically, who I turned on, who I was beginning to do plan formal research with at the University of Chicago, uh, the government suddenly announces a completely fraudulent claim that this drug causes brain damage. And so that they were justified in, in uh, declaring an emergency ban on this drug. And then, so it was, became illegal overnight. And as soon as that happened, this vast underground network producing this drug in enormous quantities. This is where the rave phenomena began. MDMA, which went from being kind of produced in little clandestine laboratories like mine, shared in secret by conscious people exploring their health and mysteries, uh, suddenly became huge criminal syndicates producing huge amounts of it became the most popular recreational drug in the world almost overnight by the by the later 1980s this phenomena of rave it became a it became a money it became they like billions of dollars um it became an environmental catastrophe in southeast asia where uh, what was it? Saffron. One of the essential ingredients was harvested from old growth trees or something, and it became a mess. Criminal syndicates affiliated with intelligence agencies, mostly Israeli. Google this. Like I said, and I said that uh, heroin is a CIA operation. Well, MDMA is a Mossad operation. It's just controlled by Israeli organized crime with links to that. And this phenomenon of the rave scene happens where all across the world, you know, warehouses are filled with thousands of kids tripping their brains out on this drug. And, and um, now just to go back to Huxley for a second, this is what Huxley said. Huxley, Huxley talked about how in this futuristic dystopian society, Nobody's going to protest because on the weekends, they go out to these Soma holidays where they take these drugs and feel like everything is okay, and they're, they're, they fuck their brains out. And then they go back to work on Monday. Like, who wants to start a revolution if you're going to go away on the weekend and go to, you know, go to a rave and, you know, all this kind of, you know, this proliferation of kind of casual, random sexuality and, um, and, uh, and that was what we saw happening from the late 1980s, continuing through the 1990s into the early part of the century. Like this whole this whole culture, this your generation, your age people, you know, they're like just kind of somatized. Like wow, and you, you, the, you the memes that come out of this generation, like it's all good, you know, this kind of thing. Like, and then and then you get this phenomena. You mentioned this before, and this is a I have a real issue here. You talk about the medical research into using MDMA to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. You were alluding to that, right? 
You know, like I have a thing about that because uh, on the one hand, yes, it's true. MDMA has marvelous properties for helping people to see through their pain and forgive and to understand and move on. But, um, you know, we have this, we have we're, this society, I listened to one of your podcasts earlier and you're aware of this, you know, we have this suicide rate of like 22 young men and women are killing themselves every day after having participated in these wars. This is a public relations nightmare for the military. You know, these kids aren't just killing themselves because they've been subjected to trauma in the wars. These kids are killing themselves because they realize that they've been tricked. They've been tricked into fighting for a country. They thought they were going over there to fight for democracy. And then they realize, holy fuck, we're the enemy. We're not, we're not spreading democracy or, or we're, we're, the, we're the imperial force. We're the demons here. And you can't talk about that to any of the military psychiatrists. So these people are just freaking out and they're killing themselves because they can't forgive themselves that they've been ordered to commit these atrocities to these innocent people in these, in these um, Middle Eastern countries. And so what is the, what's the military? What's the, what's the solution? Well, let's just, let's just throw this drug at them and let's get them to forgive. Let's get them to just forget about this. And the military, you know, giving MDMA, this is, this is Aldous Huxley's Soma, you know, times 10. That's how mm. I see it. Yeah, well, that's a really valuable perspective. And I wanted to bring this up because I remember several months ago, and I think it was actually in February. Um, yeah, there was a press release that came out from MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. We're discussing MDMA uh, treatment. We're discussing uh, MDMA and the, the clinical trials that are being done on behalf of MAPS and their the, the money that they've uh, raised for research into this. Um but they released a, they had a press release, and the Mercer Family Foundation grants a million dollars to MAPS for PTSD research and veterans. So the Mercers, it's a family, a very wealthy family. They backed Steve Bannon, who, of course, worked for the Trump administration. They donated a lot of money to the Trump campaign. Um, they were one of the big backers. So you're discussing this correlation between right-wing movements, right-wing groups that have maybe more fascist ideological underpinnings to their you know their aims um and you have an organization like the mercers now i remember hearing about this and i had an interview with dr ben sessa who is leading the clinical trials in england in the united kingdom for mdma and he was having a hell of a time it was on social media but he's having a hell of a time having a conversation <laughs> with people who were a little upset or confused or had a really um, difficult time understanding why why would the Mercer Foundation back psychedelic research? Um, what investment? What did, what investment investment in the future do they see from doing that? Of course, veterans. But but like you said, you know there yeah there's a real correlation here between perpetuating the war machine and using psychedelics as a way to sort of deal with a lot of the. Uh, understandable traumas that come with um being engaged in war yeah yeah no it's a very it's a very tricky multi-level problem and uh you know like ben sessa is a very good friend of mine he's a person that i respect enormously he's a beautiful man a brilliant funny man with a healing heart who wants to devote his career to helping people 
and I support and encourage him every bit of the way. Um, Maps, however, uh, the founder of Maps, Rick Doblin, is a totally different character, and I've known him for Rick Doblin got his first MDMA in my research project back in 1983, and he is, you know, Maps is not like a progressive drug policy organization. Maps is a is a is a scam from the very beginning. You know, and um, I can go into details, but I maybe don't want to now. Maybe we'll have another conversation about this. And so you can see how these right wing operatives, corporate profiteers, exploit the beneficent properties of psychedelic drugs to further their agenda. And and um, it's very tricky. Ben and I debate this all the time. And there's um, there um, we have to make these kinds of distinctions. And um, and it's um, it's get, it can get very emotional. We're talking about um, millions of people who have been turned on to psychedelics, who love them, who react very negatively to this idea that they've been tricked into falling for something. You know, that's that wonderful adage of Mark Twain, right? It's easier to fool someone than to convince them that they've been fooled. <laughs> and, you know. I make these when I make these critical comments, you know, people will try to twist my words into saying, "Oh, well, Forte doesn't really like psychedelic research." No, that's not true at all. I'm all for psychedelic research. I just don't think it should be, be it should be controlled by criminal syndicates like the United States government or the Pentagon. Like we have to really we have a real crisis of legitimacy in the modern world. And this whole FDA you know, uh, big pharma collusion that controls our drugs and, um, you know, uses them to serve political realities that are hostile to the larger population. We need to look at this stuff with, uh, with a lot more intelligence than, than this renaissance, you know, widespread popular and microdosing. That's another thing, you know, like this, this incredible, you know, advertising of LSD for the mainstream, like, oh, it's going to make you more creative. It's going to make you a better worker. It's going to make you a billionaire like Steve Jobs. And all this promotion has been going on without very few critical voices saying like, hmm, wait a minute. Do I really want to be like Steve Jobs? I mean, is that what the world needs more is more billionaires? Or does what the world need more is like less consumerism, less of this techie stuff and more things like permaculture and uh, anti God, if we could just garner all of this movement and, and towards psychedelics and focus it on war crime prosecutions for any of our presidents of the last 20 years and really get at what's why are we fighting? And, um, you know, we would make a, take a big dent out of the environmental crisis, the economic crisis, and uh, psychedelics are a big distraction from all of that. Yeah. You know, it's weird because, like, psychedelics for me always had this, this thing that it would connect you to the experience of having a psychedelic like mushrooms felt like it stripped away a lot of um kind of emotional or whatever kind of baggage and it and it always seemed to draw you to the natural world makes you want to go outside makes you want to feel and experience life around you that oftentimes i think is at least i wouldn't notice unless i was under the influence of a psychedelic and so 
having conversations with people who have taken, say, for instance, ayahuasca, they talk about a, a mother, you know, a, an ayahuasca spirit, almost a mother ayahuasca that is sort of trying to connect people to the natural world and try to make them realize that you're in a really, you know, precarious moment here. Um, we need to start reconnecting ourselves back into the life systems of this planet again. And it seems that while that is happening simultaneously, it's almost as if whatever is on the other side of the psychedelic experience, I don't know what you feel about, like, when McKenna, for instance, talks about, you know, there's always something on the other end of the mushroom, right? There is an actual intelligence there that is communicating through us, through us, through the mushroom. Um, and the same thing with ayahuasca or other psychedelic drugs, but that there is this other human side to it, which is far more um, <laughs> tricky to try to grapple with. And I think that that's what uh, it's almost so tragic is that, that if you have a really profound MDMA experience, you're going to want more and more people to have that experience because it healed you in some way or the same thing with mushrooms or LSD or whatever it is. But it just, it, it's a, a, such a tragic thing that there are still these horrible political institutions and economic institutions and groups of human beings that are willing to use something that, I think has important sacred properties and use that to coerce, to manipulate and control populations for the benefit of what the, the furtherment of, of kind of a neoliberal capitalist paradigm, you know, uh, that to me mm -hmm. is something yeah. that more and more people need to have an awareness of. Yeah. yeah. No, there's a going where that's why I'm agreeing to do more of these podcasts and stir up these kinds of conversations. And I get a lot of, feedback and a lot of people are you know are aware like of the the map scam and you know really understand the the not so hidden agenda of rick doblin its founder and you know you mentioned another psychedelic icon terence mckenna who i knew very well you know we've only we haven't really talked about the whole popularizing of ayahuasca which is another one that <laughs> has, uh, you know there are I've, I've spent a lot of time. I've been down to Peru half a dozen times. I did a, I did research field work with cancer patients, bringing them down to the jungle and working with indigenous curanderos, and then to see this, um, this kind of spiritual colonialism, of uh, you know, like what's really happening. First of all, you know, you have to question a lot of these assumptions. Like, are these native people, native users of ayahuasca? Are they really living in a kind of symbiotic har harmony with nature hmm not really they're you know a lot of those cultures are really um patriarchal and um they have all these crazy superstitions the the mm. there's a whole range of administrators some real pure-hearted natural healers and a lot of like power-hungry sexual predators uh the history of ayahuasca is uh, itself something that we ought to really question. It's being advertised, again, in the media, this whole campaign. It's in major motion pictures. Celebrities are doing it. Mag National Geographic. It's um, created this whole craze of ayahuasca tourism down in the Amazon. Shamans are popping up like Burger Kings down there. The indigenous supply is endangered. You know, they, it's, it's advertised that ayahuasca is this ancient sacrament that's used by these, you know, people that live in harmony with nature. Well, that's not at all true. 
Um, it's not that ancient. Well, ayahuasca, just the vine used in healing, basically because it makes you shit and throw up. There's not really a spiritual component to it. The addition of DMT into the harmine containing ayahuasca, that's a relatively new phenomenon. That's only like a couple of hundred years old. And it's very suspect. And then you have these churches that that are popping up in the United States, this Santa Daime and the Unea de Vegetal. And these are like crackpot organizations, some crazy mix of, you know, Christianity and, and um, you know, indigenous shamanism with these superstitions and these hierarchies. And it's like, what the fuck is this? And they're, <laughs> the ones with this they're the ones where it's so-called legal. And the whole thing was almost, or Terrence McKenna, who, now I knew Terrence very well, and I supported him. I was a significant contributor to the, to the, uh, transplanting of ayahuasca into Hawaii. And I love Terrence. You know, he was an incredible guy to sit down and just, uh, you know, smoke a joint and listen to. He had an incredible mind and he was unbelievably articulate and he could tell, he was Irish, he could tell a story. But Muslim stories were made up. And if you look more carefully into Terrence's life and you ask yourself, was that the kind, was that the kind of life I want to have? Like, look at his behavior, his wife, his children, and hey, he was kind of famous, but did he, what, did he live a happy, creative, productive life? You know, look at the, read the biography that his brother wrote about him. And Terrence, for all his uh, glib endorsing of psychedelic drugs, he didn't really even take them after the early 1980s. He had a mushroom trip that scared the shit out of him. And even though he's over the next uh, 20 years telling people, you know, go sit in a dark room and take five grams, that's not what he did. You know, he he was he was creating himself as a pop star and promoting something in a dishonest way and that's something that has to be kind of reconsidered in an intelligent critical analysis of this modern psychedelic phenomena among other things yeah well man there are so many <clears throat> avenues and directions that i would like to go i mean you discussed um MDMA to some depth and of course um ayahuasca and the uh some of the difficulties that I think that like anytime that I think and I use this uh term white people but anytime white culture white people uh find something that can maybe fix their problems right or like some kind of superfood right like some some super nutritional food like quinoa or something automatically disrupts the places in which those uh, plants are from. So if you have a huge influx of interest in ayahuasca and shamanistic ayahuasca uh, practice, you're just going to get an influx of white people <laughs> to show up and try because, you know, people are in pain and people have addictions and people have traumas they're trying to work out. And they might go about it in all kinds of misguided and, and really peculiar and naive and ignorant ways. Um, but that's what happens, and and I think like you're pointing to, and and the thing is, is you, like you had dis discussed through this entire discussion we've had up to this point, you've been with psychedelics since you know the the early days, and you've seen this larger scope that I don't think most people in my generation have. Um, we're excited because we're seeing, oh, finally, I don't have to worry about smoking weed and getting arrested. Or finally, they're going to have MDMA treatment. I can go to a, a clinic and I can work out my 
issues that I had when I went served in the U.S. military. I mean, these are all these are all sound like positive developments for our generation. Yeah. But you yeah. provide such a makes it think mm-hmm. right makes it think like we've become more progressive. Like, hey, wow, yeah. what a cool army we have. We can even you know the, the army gives the soldiers MDMA. Well, Way, well, what a great army. Yeah, it was like when uh, during the. Op- what was it? The Obama administration? I don't remember when it was, but they, they made it so, uh, you know, gay people, uh, people who identify as, as homosexual can serve in the yeah. military and it isn't a problem anymore. Right. And everybody's like, what, what great progress we have made. I'm like, it's still right. the military. <laughs> yeah. You got gay people killing brown people. Great. Um, that doesn't make it properly progressive, you know? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So that's what we're up against. And, uh, Again, I don't want to, I, I, I think that there is a, I mean, I love psychedelics. I haven't taken them very much for the last couple of years, but I'm, um, I feel blessed by my experiences and what I've learned. And I just think it's about who, um, the set and setting and who is uh, controlling them, who is administering them, what is the real intention behind the administration of these drugs and and like again i do think that there was a certain backfire to the first wave of psychedelics they wanted to create this brave new world scenario and timothy leary was a really important figure in there and he put a different spin on them he he upset i believe the plans for this somatizing of the culture and if you look at all these characters in the 1960s Tim was the only guy, really, that had to that had to deal with the law. He spent seven years in prison. He was really persecuted, and he he didn't just tell people to take drugs like Ken Kesey or Terrence McKenna. He told people to take drugs to question authority and think for yourself. He was doing he was doing social therapy on the culture. He was getting he was an anti-war activist. Now, these other guys are really anti-war activists, certainly not Doblin. I mean, Doblin is an Israeli Zionist, you know. He's, a, he, he's an Israel first kind of guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that about him. Ben Sis is a more interesting kind of character because Ben really is an anti-war guy. Ben is a, ben is a you know, beautiful man, but he wants to help people. Rick wants to make a buck, and that's kind of apparent to anybody that really knows him. And and uh, so to just look more critically at these characters is really basically what I'm saying. Yeah. And well, I, I thank you for that that criticism because yeah, there are so many so many things to take uh, so many things to to account for when you're talking about something as complex as say uh, dropping psychedelics into the uh, the culture. Right? It's not a simple. It's not as, it's not as, I think there's a lot of romantic notions that come with psychedelics. And I think that doesn't take away from the sacredness of the experience, the spiritual experience of having a profound psychedelic experience. Um, it doesn't take away from that at all, but we need to be very conscious and very aware of the cultural forces that may be taking advantage of psychedelics for their own purposes. And exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I'm really glad we had this discussion. We've been talking over an hour now, and I don't want to take up too much of your time. And I would really like to continue this conversation sometime in the future. Um, this was a really, uh, this was an easy conversation to have. You know, this was, I had a really good back and forth. Um, I feel like you, uh, you, you have a very 
deep knowledge and intelligence about this subject, but you're very approachable, which is important. <laughs> so, well, thank you. And I appreciate what you're doing, Patrick. It's nice to make the connection. Yes, of um, course. I sometimes drive through um, Twin Falls, Idaho on my way to ski in, in um, Big Sky, Montana. Uh, let's stay in touch. I will um, turn people your way and let's see what kind of conversation we can start here. Okay. That sounds wonderful. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me today, Robert. My pleasure. Thanks for reaching out. Thank you for listening to Last Born in the Wilderness. Have a wonderful week. And as a psychedelic bard, Terrence McKenna said, take it easy, dude, but take it.